0: We're going to cover a lot of material. As Pastor said, uh, a lot of this is about typology. It's a foreshadowing. So what you're reading in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of something that's uh, revealed in the New Testament. And of course our focus is on Christ, His ministry, His priesthood. And so everything in this tabernacle is going to scream from the pages that we'll read from this point to the end of this study that we're going to be reading about Christ. And so. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity. And um, you know, I've always loved this picture. It just speaks volumes. And we're going we're gonna to turn our Bibles, if you would, to Exodus 25. Um, you, you might as well put a placeholder on Genesis 6, because that's where we're going to park uh, in a few minutes here. But Exodus 25, um, obviously God is stating His, His uh, purpose for the tabernacle in verses 8 and 9. We read this last week. And I'll just read it once again in verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I might dwell among them. Well, That's that a loaded statement. <laughs> that I might dwell among them. You've got to really consider that in light of Israel's condition. Yes, they passed through the blood. Yes, they passed through the Red Sea. But they were in no condition to be around a holy God despite the fact that they had been redeemed through the blood. They were a mess, folks. I mean, Israel's condition was repulsive. They were whiners, complainers, stiff-necked, rebellious, godless, idol-worshippers. They had spent 400 years in Egypt. They were a mess when they came out of here. And yet, you read in this statement, God's saying, I want to dwell with them. That gives me... Incredible confidence about what God thinks of me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, you read Paul talking, he says, You know, be not deceived. You know, the, the, the righteous aren't, or the unrighteous aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither uh, fornicators or adulterers or the uh, abusers with themselves and mankind, effeminate, thieves. And he goes through this list of sins. But he says in verse, I think, 11, he says, And such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So yes, you were a mess after you got saved, but God said, it doesn't matter, I want to dwell with you, because I've taken care of that. I've made it possible to dwell with you, just like He made it possible to dwell with them, despite the fact of the condition they were in. And God spends a lifetime dealing with us to get us to be more like Him. God's whole purpose is to dwell with you. Now, He dwelt with them. He dwells in us. There's a big difference in the New New Testament. But yet, God's very purpose is to fellowship and to be with His people. I I love that statement. I, I dwell on that statement quite often because it teaches me a lot about God's long-suffering, and God's mercy, and God's love, and God's grace. But as we move on here, God is giving Moses specific instructions. You le- read in verse uh, 9, according to all that I will show thee after the uh, the pattern of the tabernacle. So he's, he's telling Moses, you're going to put this together exactly like I tell you. I mean, down to every detail. It is exhausting, as I was saying last week. I, I have read this hundreds of times and, and, and it is laborious. The average reader is not going to spend a lot of time in Exodus from exodus 25 to 40. They're just not they'll read it, but they'll miss so much because the details God is in the details. But the problem is the details are exhausting and boring. But boy, are they when you start to sit back and study them in de- and you, you carefully look at this, you're going to find out. God has stamped all over this His doctrines of truth in the New Testament. And the first instrument that God gives to Moses before He builds the tabernacle, the first instrument, a piece of furniture by the way, think of that for a minute, we'll get into that, furniture versus the actual building. He says, I want you to build the ark. Why the ark? Why the first mention? Of, of, of anything in the tabernacle is the ark itself. That tells me something really important about the ark that we need to study and we need to carefully find out why God chose that, inch, that piece of furniture first. And so we'll go into the details here of really tying the ark to, to the person of Christ. You'll see this here as this, this plays out. In verse 20, chapter 25 verse 10 Uh, He writes, and they shall make an art of Shittim wood. And if you read down in Exodus 25, in verse 22, and there I will meet with thee and will commune with thee above the mercy seat. So when he says, I'm going to have you build this first, that's where I'm going to meet with you. Then you can build the rest of the, the tabernacle, but not until then. That tells me this ark is really Really important in the plan of God. And they shall make an art of shittim wood. I go back to what, as Pastor was talking about types and the foreshadowing, as we read, you know, Abraham sacrificing his son was a picture of God the Father sacrificing his son Jesus Christ. We see that throughout Scripture. Last week we studied the smiting of the rock. Paul made it very clear that rock was Christ. We didn't, the interpretation was there for us. Now, the Bible doesn't come out and say that ark was Christ, but we're going to prove that out this morning. So in typology, we see throughout that these are going to point to the person of Christ. But in John 5, and that, I always tell people, spend a lot of time just meditating on, on chapter 5, verses thirty uh, around 39 to the end of the chapter. And you'll see, as Christ is speaking to the doctors, the Pharisees at the time, the doctors of the law, he says, you think you have eternal life. By the way, they were staring at eternal life. And they had rejected eternal life because they didn't believe His words. It wasn't they didn't believe in Him. They didn't believe His words. He says, he says search the Scriptures. This wasn't a casual just read. Skit. He said, You're the doctors. You haven't memorized the first five books which Moses wrote. They memorized it. Think of that. They were meticulous as they wrote out the Scripture. The scribes would. And the Pharisees would search the Scripture. But He tells them, search the Scriptures. For in them, the Scriptures, the Old Testament, are they which testify or speak of Me. Well, I don't see His name stamped on the pages in the Old Testament. But He is everywhere in the Old Testament. From Genesis 1... To the end of, the, of Malachi, Christ is stamped pretty much on every page, if you're, if you're willing to look at it. And so he tells them in verse, th- I, I, I'm, I'm skipping about 39 or 40, he says in John chapter 5, he says, For had you believed Moses, so he's already correcting them, because they're the ones who wrote, they're the ones that, who had memorized Moses' scripture. Had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he, Moses, wrote of me. There's the foreshadowing. There's the typology. There's the figures of the Old Testament pointing to Christ, His ministry, and His work. And here we read reading about the ark is going to scream of Christ. The ark is Christ. Just like Paul said, that rock was Christ, I'll say that ark was Christ. Now there's something uniquely different about it, it wasn't the, just the ark itself. It was the presence of God on the ark that made it. And we'll see that here in a minute. And you'll see this terminology pop up throughout Exodus from chapter 25. It says, I will meet with thee and commune with thee. I will meet with thee and commune with thee. Again, the emphasis of God wanting to be with His people. You see it in chapters 30, verse 6, verse 36. God is constantly saying, I want to be... Think about every day. God's saying, I want to spend time with you today. The question is, do we want to spend time with God? And that's the challenge as we read through this. We have to think about it because when I read about the ark, it is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. It is the blessed person of Christ that gives value To all the work. And so we see this order and we'll talk about this in a minute in scripture. It's the person of Christ that gives value to the work. So the ark was important for God. He said it's the first instrument. But it wasn't the ark itself that was important. It was the person of Christ on the ark that made it important. And there's a valuable lesson in that. The presence of God in the ark is what gave the entire tabernacle, which I'm supposed to stay on this side not that I'm favoring this side of people I've been warned to stay on this side for the video's sake the presence of God upon the ark that gave the entire tabernacle purpose if you took the ark away which was the dwelling place of God then everything in the tabernacle including the instruments had no purpose what can we learn from this Your whole life is about the presence of God. Everything you do, your marriage, your job, your family, your work, your hobbies, everything God wants to be in the center of your life. From sunup to sundown and more. But we take God out, then everything we do is without purpose. Then John John chapter 15 says, you know, talks about, you know, I'm the branch or I'm the the root, you guys are the branches. He says, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Without God, in the presence of God upon the ark, everything had no purpose. It's meaningless. Revelation chapter 2 is a tremendous example where God is commending his church. Uh, there about uh, point, being able to point out the false apostles and, and the work they were laboring for the Lord. But he says, I have somewhat against thee. So he commends them and he's about to rebuke them. He says, I have somewhat against thee. Thou has left thy first love. Repent, he says. What happened is the church got so busy serving the Lord, they got into a routine. You know what's dangerous about being good at something? You don't need the Lord anymore. The better skills you have, the more talents that God gives you, the better you get at something, the less you depend on the Lord. And so in Revelation 2, something happened with this church. They started out really well. But then something ha- They lost their love for Christ. Why? Because He wasn't the center of their affection and desires. And as a result of that, it had no purpose anymore. It had no meaning. It had no value. So Christ adds value, puts value on everything we do. The order of scriptures prove this. Paul says, for I am determined, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe verse 3 or so, I am determined not to know anything except Christ and Him crucified. Think of it in the order that it's put. To know Christ is the person. To know Him crucified is His work. It's always in that order. To know Christ first and His work. This is a work right now. Teaching Sunday school is a work. But it has no value if Christ was not put at the center of this study. From the time I began to the time I completed. Christ is first and then the work follows. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, The mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, there's the person. And the increase of His government, there shall be no end. There's His work. The order of Scripture is always Christ the person, then the work. So that's what we see here in the ark. The order also, you see this in Scripture with grace unto you and what? Peace. Every salutation, grace, peace. Grace, peace, why? There's no peace without grace. The scriptures have a lot of order to it. I mean, in fact, it's entirely orderly. God's an orderly creator. Melchizedek, king of righteousness and the ki- and, and the king of Salem. Think about the king of righteousness, and then Salem was second. Why the king the peace. First righteousness then peace. You can't have peace without righteousness. The world's trying to gather peace without the righteousness of God. Order of Scripture is important and here the order is the ark first and, and God said I'm going to dwell there and because I'm dwelling there I'm going to dwell with you. You take away the presence of God in the ark then everything is meaningless at that point. It's all vanity. It has no value. You're wasting your time. So, we continue to read on about why this ark is so important. And we're going to go now to Genesis chapter 6 because this is the law of first mention. And I've always been fascinated with the law of first mention. For any student of Scripture, it's important. Why does God mention it first? What is it related to? How does it, what is it teaching us? And the f- law of first mention is where we're going to read about the ark first time mentioned in Scripture. Now it's mentioned, we know, three times. It's mentioned here in Genesis 6. It's mentioned in Exodus chapter 2, where, no, where uh, Moses was placed in an ark. And then we read about the ark in Exodus chapter 25, so three times. But what can we learn from the law first mentioned in Genesis 6 about the ark as a type of Christ? So, in verse 14, we'll talk a little bit about the, the context here in a minute, but verses 14, he says, Make thee an ark, there's the first mention of gopher wood. And again, really important to see how this is going to point to Christ. We see here the ark of the covenant and the presence of God. And then we see the ark of Noah. What do these two have in common? They're entirely different. At at the surface, at face value, they seem to have nothing in common. But yet, when we study this out, they have everything in common. They are tied together as a picture of Christ. And so, that's what we're going to dig deep into here. So we're going to look at the context of Genesis chapter 6. Remember, it's the first mention of Ark. What is the context of the first mention of the Ark? In verses 5, most of you are familiar with this chapter. In verse 5 it says, And God saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, and that every imagination, the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continued. Wow, we could park there for a while, and really, there's some good preaching material there. We live in the world of accessibility. And I believe that the thoughts of the imaginations of the thought is driven by accessibility. The more information we have, the more... Wickedness that's out there promoted, the more that's entering the mind, the more that fills the heart, and the more the heart responds. And so there's a lot of correlation between what we're reading here and our modern day world. But certainly conditions were bad in that day that God's going to declare a judgment. So with the ark, we have the wickedness of man, the sin. Man was godless, depraved, no accountability to God. Sound familiar? We are living. In a time like no other. Now, can I say this is as bad as it was 500 years ago? A thousand? It would be hard to say that. I think every part of history probably has a lot of wickedness. What makes it different today is the accessibility of that wickedness. But here we saw that connected where God wants to build an ark, sin is prevalent throughout society. Number two, the Lord says, I'm going to destroy man. So. God has a warning for mankind. He's, he's had enough. He reached his point of no return. And God says, I'm going to destroy man whom I have created. That's, that's a loaded statement, by the way. And you know, um, you think about it, He gave them a warning of 120 years in this judgment. So he gave them 120 years to hear the message and to watch Noah. Now, I personally, the Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. In 2 Peter chapter 2. Preacher of righteousness. That tells me he declared God's message to a depraved and godless society who did not respond to the message. Now, you talk about a tough ministry. I mean, Noah spent 120 years building an ark when there was no rain. When there's no... They, the thought of, of rain was never seen or experienced. It came from the earth. And and, and so here's Noah giving a message that God's going to destroy the earth with rain. You've got to imagine how people responded to that. At the end of his ministry, and I'd say it's a tough ministry, he had seven converts and a bunch of animals. From man's perspective, that's a failure. 120 years and seven converts from a preacher of righteousness. We all say he was a minority when when he went into that ark. Brother, when he came out of that ark, he was a majority. So, God's not always about the numbers. God will have victory. It's interesting also in this context of sin and judgment that Noah, the preacher of righteousness, the animals obeyed the message. Isn't that interesting? The animals were willing to, get to come out of the rain, as they say. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He says, The the ox knoweth his owner, the ass his master's crib, but my people doth not know, my people doth not consider. That statement is, is a declaration of shame on God's people. They didn't know where their blessings were coming from, they didn't know who their owner was, they didn't know where they were to rest at night, but yet the animals did. And you find in Genesis 6, it's the animals that obeyed God and got into the ark. Not God's or the people that God created, other than the seven converts that Noah had. So the Lord said, I'm going to destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth. But with sin and judgment came a remedy. And this is a real critical piece. But with thee will I establish my covenant, speaking to Noah, and thou shall come into the ark. Come into the ark from what? From the judgment's coming. That tells me the ark is a place of refuge for the sinner. It tells me it's a place of security for the sinner. It's a place to hide from the wrath of God. And Those that went in were safe and secure. Those that were without incurred the wrath of God. That alone speaks volumes of why the ark is a type of Christ. But in the midst of all this, the ark being built with sin, judgment, and a remedy, we we find in verse 8, though once again, the law first mentioned, in the midst of the ark being built, we have the mention of the word grace for the first time. The grace of God and the ark are connected. You didn't get out, you didn't get into the ark of Christ Himself, apart from the grace of God. You are saved by grace, through faith. That faith came by the word of God that God gave to you by opening your eyes. The work of God. And there we see grace in verse 8 connected to the ark. It screams what this ark really is. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Not only that, if you turn your Bibles to chapter 7, look in verse 1, it was connected with the first invitation. So the first time the ark's mentioned, it's connected to a world that's about to be judged for those that get into the ark, are given security, because it's according to grace. And now we have in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. I'm I'm, I'm blown away by the fact that you have an invitation where the ark is being built. The invitation of God is everywhere. When we look at life, compare the words of Christ. Come unto me. Just like He said, come into the ark. He said, come unto Me all that you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Spirit and Bride said, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst, come. You see the, the invitation of God continually in the, to the people, the lost people of the world to come into Christ. Or in the case of chapter 7, verse 1, come into the, the ark. A type of Christ. Where you find safe, Safety and security. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. What was that an invitation? Come thou and all thy house. So again, wonderful verses that the ark was foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as a refuge for the sinner. That's why there was an emphasis in Exodus 25 to make the ark first. Because Christ has the preeminence in all things. All things. He was the creator. He, consist, he was the alpha, the omega, the first, the last. And he was, he was the creator, but he was before all things. And by him, all things consist. God says, my son has preeminence in all things. So when you build the tabernacle, the ark will be a foreshadowing of Christ. That's why it's first. And it's a refuge for the sinner, as we saw in Genesis 6. A place of safety and security. That ark was undergoing was the safety from what? The wrath of God. The baptism of God's wrath on a world, a lost world. We know how horrible this is. But God's going to judge this world again. It's coming. We know and we know from what the scriptures tell us in tribulation that God is going to judge this world in a horrible way. There won't be much left for those of you who read in the book of Revelation and throughout Scripture of Prophecy, God's, God's had enough. And when he, he says enough, He will judge just like He did, much like Genesis 6. And the only safe, only safe and secure place will be in Christ. So just as the world was baptized with the wrath of God, Christ was baptized with the wrath of God. This is why He cried from the cross, Father. Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God the Father was incurring his wrath for our sin on his Son. And the ark of the cup, not the ark, but the ark in Genesis 6 was taking the wrath of God, but it survived. Christ rose from the grave three days later because he was without sin. And now he can offer all those safe and security. In him, of course. As the ark. So we we don't incur the wrath of God because He incurred it for us. But those outside the ark, they incur the wrath of God. Those outside of Christ, they incur the wrath of God. So those who are in ark are saved from the judgment of God. In addition to all this, back in Genesis chapter 7, look down in verse 16. So we have the we have the grace mentioned with the ark. We have the invitation to come into the ark in chapter 7. I mean, you're reading the gospel in Genesis 6 and 7. That's what you're reading. And you're reading that the answer is Christ in Genesis 6 and 7. And you're getting an invitation to come to the ark and for safety and security from the wrath of God. And here, in Genesis 7 verse 16, I find this very profound, and it's not a mistake by any means. It says, and the Lord shut him in. The Bible never refers to Noah locking himself into the ark. He told, I mean, I mean common sense would tell us that Noah probably had a piece of rope, and he probably you know, pulled on that, 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 that final door and sealed it before the floods came. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible simply skips over all that and says, and the Lord shut him in. Who did the work? When all the animals were in, and Noah's seven converts, his family, God says, I got the rest. It was the Lord that told him to build it, how to build it, gave him the ability to build it, called the animals, they obeyed God, they got in the ark, and in the end, God says, I'll shut you in. I started it. I'll finish it. God's salvation is His, not ours. He gives it to us. You ever hear anybody, say, oh, I think I lost my salvation. You ever hear anybody say that? I, I, I had somebody come up to me last night, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not, I'm. Well, it wasn't yours to lose to begin with. It's God's salvation, not ours. He gives it to us as a free gift, but it's His. He's not taking it back. So we see here the Lord shut him in because the Lord started the work and the Lord will finish the work. How encouraging that! It's the Lord that does the sealing. So not only are we saved by his grace, which showed up in Genesis 6 into the ark, we are kept by his grace. I'm confident that he will, what he began, he will finish. Now, you can fight him. <laughs> That's not going to be pleasant. It's better to submit. But God will finish the work that He started. I love this verse in in, in Ephesians chapter 1. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, what happened? You were sealed. The Lord shut them in. He did what? He sealed them. We didn't... We didn't do it. We are vacuum sealed by God. We are baptized into the body of Christ. Oh, it's ten fifty. Thank you, brother. It's time to go. So there is my place to stop, and we're just getting started. So, so you have to. There's a lot to digest here. I get it. There's a lot here. I want you to go back and meditate on Genesis six and seven and see the gospel and see Christ in all of this. Such a blessing. With that, let's go Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for this good day. Thank you for the opportunity to to worship Christ. Thank you, Lord, that your scriptures lift up Christ, that, Lord, we can be drawn closer to him. Thank you for the truth. Help us, Lord, to uh, meditate on these things and to put Christ first as he has the preeminence in everything we do and should. And I pray you bless, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.